0: Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights Podcast Series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC, and today we're thrilled to once again be joined by Sunsuper's Head of Asset Allocation, Andrew Fisher, who helps generate the retirement dreams of over 1.4 million Sunsuper members. In our first QPod episode, Andrew lined us with his first-hand account of how COVID impacted both himself and his team, and how they had to maintain agility amongst such uncertainty today we're thrilled to continue the conversation with Andrew as to how the health and financial crisis led to a liquidity tsunami that has fundamentally rewritten the rule books for long-term investment strategies Andrew can I start today's QPod with a cracker of a first question around asset allocation in our first episode you gave us a bit of a window into the world you're operating in the decisions you are having to make in such a short period of time and the pressure you and your team faced can I now ask what does asset allocation look like for you today, as opposed to six months ago? And do you still rely on that structure?
1: Yeah, look, it's, it's still a, it's important. So I think having that having that long term anchor. I mean, actually, that was one of the critical things through all of this is having no, knowing knowing where knowing what you actually knowing where you want to be is still of critical importance. Where. Um, Where and and I think it's I mean and it shows up I mean it shows up in returns Um, the the really simple a really simple index portfolio has done really well through this process so um, I think I think it's um, it's still really important what um, has what this event has sort of brought to the forefront is how important the execution side of it is so how you actually get to your SAA and your capacity to stay there and manage risk around it Um, that's been for me, at least, that's been the bigger the bigger takeaway. I mean, if, I, if as you're going through the crisis, someone said this to me, and it's really good discipline because you forget really quickly as you're going through. Like, make a list, um, make a list of all the things that um, you realise you should have done better before you got here. Because um, one of the, I mean, my I, I sort of touched, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but it was certainly true that when you were prepared, I mean, it wasn't so much you were lucky or unlucky; it was where you were prepared or where you weren't prepared. Um, going into this, that was what became very obvious um, in the middle of the crisis, and so making a note of all the areas where okay we could have been better prepared here, um, and I should have thought I was going to say this before I said it because you're going to ask me what's on the list and I can't remember. Um, but th- that's the <laughs> that's the it mean, making that list, and I've, I haven't even had a chance to go back and look through it all. Um, but I know I've got the list there, um, and I'm going to try and bring it up before you ask the question, Craig. <laughs>
0: No worries, read my mind. Well, we'll let, let me give you some time to to, to search your list. Um, so apart from the Nasdaq, which has been an absolute tear recently, global equity markets have also, in, in, across the, the aggregate, rebounded fairly strongly, supported by enormous levels of fiscal stimulus globally and nearing but not quite yet at pre-COVID levels. Um, they still seem, however, to be Baking in a lot of optimism, as we discussed earlier. So you mentioned tactical and you mentioned dynamic asset allocation strategies. Are these strategies handling these conditions well?
1: Uh, ooh, um, it's it's, a, it's interesting. I think um, one of the uh, one of the sort of classic lines that people will use is it's been a really tough um, really tough environment for active management, um, and that applies to. Uh, that applies in listed markets, and also applies um, between them. And so we have we use multi asset managers, for example, um, as well as doing dynamic asset allocation ourselves. We use external managers to do the same. Uh, and you, you're right; it hasn't. These sorts of strategies haven't covered themselves with glory through the through the crisis. Um, but I think at the same time, um, this isn't the sort of event that. Um, that your classic uh, dynamic asset allocation strategy is really set up to uh, profit from either uh, but a dynamic asset allocation strategy is certainly set up and should be set up to profit from in the aftermath of this because if you think about um, a sort of the exogenous uh, shock like this and I use the expression natural disaster and it is a similar similar sort of concept when that, something like that happens um, there will be a massive shock to markets but markets recover and economies recover and the world recovers and so being able to take that sort of medium-term lens on things and say okay there's been the big shock okay that's it, it opens up the opportunity set and so that's how I see this from a dynamic asset allocation point of view this is the sort of shock that opens up an opportunity set and then do you have the do you have the process the time horizon the um, capacity in place to take advantage of the opportunities Um
0: And I went down that path because, of course, a lot of dynamic asset allocation strategies rely on sort of valuation techniques. And I suppose it's a a poor segue to my next question, which is around a common exposure in most super funds across Australia, which is equity value. And it's fair to say it's been getting a hammering for quite a while now. I mean, look, QIC has also been a believer in equity value for a number of years as well. So it'd be great to get your take on if it's misunderstood if there's been a, a regime shift, uh, how do you look at equity value at the moment?
1: So I will couch this as a personal view. Um, I I think that um, so if you if you believe if you believe that there is risk in value, so buying the cheapest companies in the index, uh, they're cheap for they're cheap for a reason. There's risk around the earnings, and buying those cheap companies, you will be rewarded for that risk over the long term. I think that is a Feasible thesis um, that has been tested uh, more recently, and it's been tested for obvious reasons, but that could quite presumably play out over the medium term. Um, tech companies can't run the whole world. Um, I don't think that's plausible, but at the same There's time. There's still a role I mean, for
0: manufacturing, Andrew.
1: We, we all still eat, right? Like, we can't eat computers. And so, and that's a really fundamental thing as a human race we're going to have to keep doing, I think. Um, we're going to keep wearing clothes um, and so how they get to us may change but someone's still gonna to have to make them. Um, so yes I think there's there's certainly that element um, but um, to the extent that uh, you're sort of relying on value as I mean like a like the the farmer French um, farmer French approach to just buying um, buying cheap uh, there's like a there's a, an outsized return there um, I think, that's something that could and should be challenged um, because markets have an amazing ability to efficiently reprice things once they're known about. And so you can take, I and mean, this is where it gets really hard to make, a, um, make an informed decision because all the data we have is the history that we've lived and nothing else. And so it's quite feasible that, um, to me at least, it seems quite feasible that the last 10 years of value doing not very much, uh, you could say it as the last five years as values underperformed but over 10 years it's done not very much and in fairness i'm using data before value got smashed even harder more recently so it's probably even longer term now but over that period that also just coincides with a period where everyone thought they could make money just by following a value approach to investing because it had worked for 40 years before that and there was a body of research to back it there is a tendency once there's a body of research behind something for a lot of people to do it and to effectively arbitrage away the premium, um, so I so I, I'm not giving you even remotely a firm answer there, Craig. Um, very economist-like answer. On the one hand, it could be X, and on the other hand, it could be Y. But uh, I'm not. I'm. I'm not a strong. I don't have a strong view either way, basically.
0: Now, you're giving us a bit of a unique uh, look at the, the equity value spectrum from your point of view. It leads me to the next question, which is around. You know, we've seen, obviously, we talked before about fiscal stimulus, which has been, you know, unprecedented, a word we're hearing lots of these days. But in addition to that, it's been one of, one of the great outcomes of this latest uh, crisis has been the fact that you've had monetary policy working very effectively with fiscal policy, which we didn't have in the GFC. Um, that's led to, of course, to things like bond yields. Um, uh, being uh, incredibly low does it start to put pressure on that s- traditional 60/40 balanced portfolio is that still relevant going forward
1: uh, it's um it's a it's a really good question um uh so i think it depends how you think of a 60/40 portfolio if you think of a 60 portfolio 60/40 portfolio with 60% risk assets um and you think of it as okay, i have an allocation to risk assets and then I have essentially a defensive portfolio there that's designed to not be risk assets rather than designed to be diversifying against them um, then I think that thesis still holds um, but what I think is must be challenged with rates where they are is the capacity for um, defensive assets to do anything other than nothing basically dilute your risk um, I don't it's really hard to see a scenario where defensive assets do anything other than diluting risk. Um, and so allocating cash or allocating the bonds probably isn't going to get you a much different outcome from here is how it appears at least. And now I so could have, you-, you could have asked me three years ago, Craig, and I could have told you the same thing. I would have been horrifically wrong. Um, yeah, that's
0: right. <laughs> yeah. That, that yield compression continued, didn't it? Yeah. Um, But when you look at defensive, is it making you just sort of question defensive assets and and maybe
1: even on a positive note, look for new sources of of defensiveness in your portfolio? Um, Yes, but again, markets have a crazy way of being relatively efficient um, in this context. And so uh, I think a lot of people thought they found some other defensive assets and were um, sadly mistaken in the last few months. So I think it's something to be fairly careful about. But, yes, we are thinking about what are the, what are the options for defensiveness. Um, but, I mean, the other side of this is, I mean, we've taken the view for a while that when you think about defensive assets, um, the long-term correlation of equities and bonds is something around zero. Um, defensive assets are low volatility and shouldn't go down when equities go down. But it doesn't mean they need to go up. Um, and so, if you take that lens to defensive assets, it does broaden your universe beyond bonds, which have been negatively correlated for 25 years, but not for 50. Um, and there are other things you can do in that space. Um, and we're looking for other things because we think that other things are better priced. I mean, if you take, for example, um, um, I'll, 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 yeah, if you take, so if you take, for example, um, our unlisted assets and we have some defensive characteristics within the unlisted portfolio. Um, I think the way that bonds have repriced in the last three months versus the way that uh, discount rates have compressed in some of the more defensive sectors of our property and infrastructure portfolio, uh, to me, that seems like an obvious opportunity that's opened up. Um Either way, I mean, if, so, if bond yields go back up, we're not going to have to reprice down property and infrastructure, and if they stay down, those assets will reprice upwards.
0: Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to having a bit more of a chat with you about uh, illiquid assets and, and private markets in a moment. Yeah. Um, just to finish off my asset allocation questions, policy certainty has been something which has uh, been very much in the press lately. Um, how are you managing for any potential expansions of the uh, early release of super policy? <laughs>
1: um, uh, look, I think where. We, we have ample liquidity right now for what uh, for the scenario we're in. I think markets, we, we have a fairly um, fairly luxurious position in terms of cash inflow. So despite everything that's happened and everything you read, it hasn't really had much of an impact on us at all. Um, our asset allocation in terms of actual invested money is quite similar today to what it was before the crisis. Uh, so at, to date, it hasn't really had a big impact on us and so we will be able to easily adapt to change. Um, and so we have we've sort of we've maintained the infrastructure in terms of liquidity management sort of the enhanced infrastructure that we developed um, during the crisis so the regular like the sort of the internal committees the regular meetings um, that has been dialed back but it's still it's still going on so that if we need to start meeting daily again to manage liquidity of the fund we'll do so um, sort of scaled some of that activity back to weekly to and so that we, we're maintaining it and we're sort of keeping it on hold in terms of our like heavy uh, liquidity management um, approach. So if things change, we'll be able to go back to that sort of posture effectively within a, within a day. Um, but as it is right now, um, our job is to invest assets for members and so that's what we're doing. Uh, so we're not holding a large... We're not seeking to hold a large pool of liquidity for things that might happen. Most of the early release payments that we anticipate have already happened.
0: And you sort of mentioned just there, you know, know, sort of how you're managing liquidity at the moment. And and you also talked about your sort of uh, don't forget list earlier. I suppose one of the things we can't forget right now is as we speak today, we're still in the middle of a health crisis and the jury is still out on the long-term effects of covid so I'd love to sort of hear the sort of the big questions you're starting to ask now. What are the big themes that you're, start, you're starting to reflect on?
1: Yeah, um, so we do. Um, we're we actually uh, we're actually in the process of planning, um, planning like an internal event specifically on this, Craig. So I can give you some of the topics that we're seeking to cover there. Um, one of them, which I think we've already touched on on the podcast already, is the role of technology in the future. And so, when we're thinking about we're thinking about this from an investment point of view, what we're really trying to work out is what's ha- like what, what what change has happened here? How much of it is what we call structural, which is like it's a it's a permanent shift, and how much of it is cyclical, which is there's been a change and it actually it's a, it presents an opportunity because it's going to revert back to where it was, and so. From that lens, what's structural and what's cyclical, we're thinking about technology, um, technology within equities but um, specifically but more broadly, the sort of shift to, um, shift to more online shopping and online interaction and online meetings. How much of what you see in prices right now is a reflection of a structural trend that was happening that is just accelerating? Has been accelerated because of this event, and how much of it is just those things have gotten really expensive because everyone's just run away with themselves with how exciting technology is, and uh, we're going to go back to we're going to go back to meeting meeting each other in person as soon as we can, and um, the we're going to go back to using shops um, again. So that's that sort of fundamental question: how much of this is long term trend that's accelerated, and we're going to stay on it, and how much of it is cyclical? Similar question around um, property market more generally. So we have exposure to shopping centres. We have exposure to office buildings. Are they going to go back to what they were? Uh, Have they structurally changed? So we've obviously taken... um, Obviously, like adjusted our earnings forecast for those assets, and that has a uh, that reflects into the valuation of the assets. That's all sort of been done. So there's been a shock to earnings, but how permanent or structural is that, and how cyclical is it? That's a question to ask. And what's in pricing right now, and should we be should we be looking at a shopping center and trying to sell it, or should we be looking at that sector of the market and seeing value, um, or is it fairly priced? But that's an obvious one. Same goes for office buildings as well, Uh, what's the future of office work. Um, Another area for us we're thinking about is energy more generally. So you mentioned it and I haven't really touched on it, um, what's happened to the oil price. Um, What does that mean? What does that mean for the energy transition that's underway? Um, So we can sort of take as a given that uh, there was a transition underway from fossil based energies into alternative energies, um, how much of what's happened is accelerating that? How much of that is actually altering it as well? Um, for example, if there is an awful lot of really cheap energy floating around the ships around the world right now just waiting for a dock to take it and burn it, um, what does that mean for alternative energy? Um, and so trying to navigate that is going to be a, a challenging challenging question that's going to have implications for our portfolio in lots of different places um, um,
0: it's a great list so
1: far yeah yeah and the other the other one's transportation um, and so one of the um one of the one of the big themes out of this has been so if you think about the way shopping is done now and distribution supply chains have been altered substantially um, and so has the concept of shipping a widget across the world three times before it becomes um, a consumable that gets used by someone in America. Is that the way supply chains are going to work or are they going to really shorten? And what does that mean for transportation? What does it mean for shipping and what does it mean for infrastructure assets like airports and seaports that really rely on rely on that trade flow? Um,
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question, that last one. Of course, it sort of leads into a potentially bigger question, which we won't answer now, but, you know, how's the world going to manufacture going forward, given, you know, clear geographic tensions occurring through some of the... The global countries at the moment is it a great step forward particularly it is a great step forward rather particularly for member engagement um and i suppose member comfort in terms of what they're getting access to but when you're designing your risk allocations as the head of asset allocation at Sunsuper, are these categorizations important
1: uh ooh, um, so yes they are um and uh what's the classic line right what gets measured gets managed and so um, look, so I, th- I think it's a really good initiative, and I think it's important. But I mean, when we're designing a portfolio, we're thinking about the risk, por- the risk um, profile of the portfolio, not the risk profile of each of the individual pieces of the portfolio. Um, and so we don't cut up, um, we don't cut up the equity portfolio and work out what are the growth and defensive assets potentially in that. We just call it all growth. So there's always a risk. Um, there's always a risk in a categorization is if you call something a growth asset, then the people investing in it will make it a growth asset. Um, it's the classic um, the classic sort of, uh, what's what I'm looking for, um, criticism of indexing more generally is that the more people that do it, the the more incentivized you are to follow the index because um, that's the, there's the agency risk in moving away from it. And, so I, so I think it's a good initiative. I know it's a challenging area and has been for a long time. Um, but there's there, one of the one of the risks with trying to categorize things that are alternative and they're alternative for a reason. Is you have growth, you have defensive. There's a lot in between. Um, and the minute you say the minute you say this label of something in between growth and defensive means it is this much growth, this much defensive. Um, uh, you're incentivizing or oh, almost you're incentivizing people either to match that and the the way you match it is the amount of leverage you use on an asset um, match it or even try and um, exceed it uh, to generate outperformance. performance and so when we're thinking about our portfolio management we're thinking okay what's the aggregate risk profile of our balanced option and is it a balanced option um, and one of the challenge but then one of the challenges always um, which is why this is a, an important initiative is then when you go to an adv- when you go to an advisor or a ratings house or anyone else in that, if they see labels on your asset allocation and they say, well that means your risk pr- profile is X, um, how do you come up with a risk profile of Y? So I think anything we can do to try and improve that process is a positive one. Um, but I'm also also I guess aware to the risk of any category categorization in that space.
0: Yeah, it's obviously important for everyone in our industry as well to try and create that trust with the end member so that transparency is vital for that process. Yeah, exactly um, right.
1: Exactly right. Um, and so I think, yeah, one of the, um, yeah, exactly right. I think it's I think it's important and I think um, comparability. So, I mean, if you think about it, we, we operate in a choice environment. So anything we can do to help um, educate members and make those decisions easier uh, or clearer um, is obviously a positive.
0: Andrew, you talked before about, um, I think you referred to the economy, you know, just shut down, which is not what the economies are designed to do. And, you know, I suppose that led to sort of outcomes such as, you know, pressure on airports, et cetera. I mean, obviously they're open to repatriation, but generally closed. What parts of the portfolio, when you look back through that period, provided the or didn't provide the resilience you're expecting what 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 areas didn't provide the diversification you were sort of relying upon
1: um well you've you've just named a couple um and and it's um anything that was really um i think anywhere that was really like pure where you're sort of seeking pure economic growth exposure um because in a lot of cases the expectation is that okay there's going to be there's stress in the corporate sector so when we're thinking about designing the portfolio and why certain sectors of our portfolio are diversifying it's areas like critical infrastructure okay there's going to be stress um, but people are going to keep getting up and moving uh, for example uh, they, they keep, they're going to keep doing the the base level economic things that they do so they sort of base core areas of the economy where you feeling like you have a defensive exposure that um, that is going to be diversifying and is going to be resilient in a crisis, um, this, was a, this was a somewhat unique crisis where those areas of your portfolio really struggled. So anything transport-related, um, and so you touched on an obvious one there, airports, was something where we're expecting that planes keep flying uh, no matter what, but turns out um, lots of things kept happening and planes weren't flying. Um, yes, I mean, like there's, I mean, there, there, are, there, there would be other areas. I mean, retail. I mean, for example, retail shopping was typically thought of as the most defensive sector in your property portfolio, and it turned out to be the worst. So, there's, there, there's, I think there's a range of areas where people were relying on defensiveness, um, and it just wasn't there at all. Um, almost the opposite.
0: So, when you look into the future, now, Andrew, and you know, you've got a, a town hall full of members. What, what are the sort of opportunities you sort of? highlighting to them you're excited about now going forward given you know you've got a bit more of a handle on the the economic conditions you're operating in
1: um i think look the the number one thing for us is so in terms of positioning and we haven't necessarily increased positioning here but it's something that we're very happy to be holding is our positions in those sort of defensive uh defensive alternatives so um Lowly geared property and um, sort of high quality critical infrastructure. And the world has um, the world has been closed down temporarily. It hasn't been closed down permanently, and so we're really um, confident and excited about the upside opportunity in those assets, particularly given where interest rates have gone. Um, so, being uh, being having access in our portfolio to those assets, I think sets us up really well. Um, in a forward-looking sort of manner and then in terms of positioning across um, sort of the traditional markets um, there's not much left I mean credit sold off and came back really quickly um, so I mean we're thinking more around equity positioning and some of the regional exposures um, underweight in the US and overweight just about anywhere else um, given the price response so we touched on technology earlier I think uh, technology's done really well, um, but um, five largest companies in the world shouldn't be that big.
0: Those fang stocks plus one uh, mm-hmm. have had an incredible run, uh, which yeah. sort of has some sense to it. But to your point, Andrew, uh, the uh, the ratios there are, are pretty healthy in terms of the multiples. Um, QIC is a an illiquid private manager for Sun Super. So just put that uh, put that out there for the listener. Has your position no on conflict, Illiquids? Craig. <laughs> well just being up very upfront front for the uh, transparency to the member point we made before. Um has your position on Illiquids changed now as a result and you know maybe put you on the spot. What are you gonna to reallocate to Illiquids Andrew?
1: Uh, yeah look it's um it's uh... I I think I mean you you did ask the question earlier around liquidity um and what concerns about um concerns about potential policy change whilst um whilst we're not holding cash um against that potential risk um uh, I I'd say it's challenging to allocate large sums of money to larger liquid assets um in an environment like this given that uncertainty so that's, a, that, that's one of the challenges we're facing. But having, having said that, I think incremental, incremental dollars for us will be going into those sectors of the markets um, where we can. Um, one of the challenges as well, though, is um, oftentimes there's, there's not quite the same, same appetite in the market to transact um, in, a, in an environment like this. So a lot of people will be bunkering down in those assets and not really thinking about transactions so and the other the other big challenge is going to be um, adapting adapting your investment process to the to a new world where you can't um, get on a plane and see people and maintain that pipeline of potential investment opportunity Um, it's not something we've really not something we've um, faced before Uh, so we've historically we've sort of re- relied on having strong relationships um, and spending time in some of these regions to maintain those relationships and maintain that investment sort of pipeline. Um, I don't know, I'm not necessarily suggesting that that um, is at risk right now. Uh, it's just more a case of it's going to be some one of the one of the other areas of unique challenge for us to navigate in the next 18 to 24 months.
0: Yeah, always important to look into the whites of the eyes when you're asking the important questions. Um, and I suppose you alluded earlier in your last answer as well that maybe the way you're accessing these illiquid assets uh, might need to evolve or may evolve as well. Of course, it's quite hard because some of those illiquid assets are literally strategic infrastructure which the nation runs upon. That's one of the you know one of the big benefits of superannuation. They are sort of helping with the uh, the economy's emergence out of the COVID crisis. Um, with regards to the industry, Andrew, you've been operating in our industry now for a number of years. Uh, you've been around a little while now. What does the industry look like in 2030? And perhaps if I can ask a little bit of a cheeky question, what's the superannuation guarantee rate at
1: 2030? Ooh. <laughs> um, okay. So what does the industry look like in 2030? Um, you can tell that this question wasn't preloaded because I'm just sitting here thinking. Um, the... I I think so you you look at let's let's um let's look at Australian industry more generally. Um we have two of everything. Um we have two big retailers. We have well we only got one Bunnings warehouse now cuz the other one fell over, but generally speaking two's about enough for our competitive dynamics here. Um we got four banks just because um, our regulator stopped them combining into two, but if had they if they had their way, I think there'd only be two banks as well. Um, so against that backdrop, um, one thing I think is certainly going to happen by 2030 is consolidation within the sector in a meaningful way. I don't necessarily foresee two superannuation funds in 2030, but I see a lot less than we have now. Um, um, and so you call them mega funds. I think we are going to be like the Australian superannuation industry once when you get to that point will be I mean, that, that will, these will be dominant pools of assets similar to what the Canadian pension industry looks like today. So I think our industry is potentially going to look a lot more like the Canadian than perhaps the US pension industry, which is a lot more um, bifurcated uh, in terms of like the, the uh, concentration of um, assets um, and purchasing power mm-hmm. than Canada. So I think Canada is probably a better model of what we look like as an industry. So now, with respect to the second part of the question, Craig, uh, what's the SG rate going to look like in 2030? I think, I mean, uh, perhaps the right thing to, question, to ask is, um, or to think about there is that superannuation in 2030 is going to be a critical part of the economy. Um, so irrespective of the rate, the ability of, a, of superannuation to support Australians through this crisis has demonstrated why our system is the envy of the world. Um, and so I think we spend a lot of time as an industry and um, as a profession focusing on how can we make superannuation better and I think it's important and we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't stop doing that but at the same time we shouldn't lose sight of the achievement that our system uh, actually represents more generally. Um, so in 2030 I think the superannuation will be better than it is today and I think Australians will be much better off as a result.
0: Great answer, mate. You got there in the end. I think that's um, yeah, a wonderful way of sort of um, explaining uh, where you think it should go and why. Um, we started the conversation today around your role and what you do day to day and how your outlook was pre-COVID. Can you share with us now as we sort of wrap up this podcast what you see as the future of investment teams?
1: Ooh, um, future investment teams? Uh, I, I think so... I think there's a few pathways to go and so you can look around the world and get a bit of a sense for this and so uh, I think like I mean like I like many industries these things move in cycles and so you have there I think there will be a cycle of internalization and there'll be a cycle of um, outsourcing you can go around the world and you can see the scenarios where a fund does internalize and then they spin off their investment organization and then go through a convoluted process of um, Disinvesting from their investment organisation. I mean, uh, financial services companies have done it here. Um, it's a uh, it's a cycle that I don't think is going to stop happening. Uh, I think our view around it and our strategy around that internalisation question has been to stay out of that cycle and work as work use use scale and use our capacity to. Um, Use our increasing capacity of influence to get better relationships with the external managers that we use, and better outcomes for our members through those relationships. Um, through a, essentially a, a stronger partnerships with those external managers, rather than seeking to compete with them. Um, so, but I mean, in terms of which way the industry goes, I think you're going to see that constant struggle of. Um, large superannuation funds seeking to either partner with or compete with external asset managers.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, we touched on a lot of topics and um, I think really for me, some of the takeaways were just getting a real bird's eye view of just what you had to go through through those uh, sort of early days in the the COVID and also, you know, market affected um financial conditions and that pace of change you refer to, but also just the clear thought and energy that goes into how you're managing and I suppose measuring as well, those future outcomes and designing portfolios for those future outcomes in the future. Thank you very much for sharing your time today and sharing your insights so openly. We do appreciate it. Thank you to our listeners listening to us today on QPod. If you would like any any information on what was discussed today, please reach out to your relationship manager Thank you for listening and uh, have a super day ahead.
1: Thank you very much, Craig.